I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part two in the series, You Were Dead, Letter to the Church in Colossae. Paul begins every one of his New Testament letters with the same greeting. Why? What power is there in a greeting? And what are we missing in the often detached, unaffectionate way in which we greet one another today? I listen to a lot of uh, stand-up comedians. I like stand-up. I think it's funny. I think <laughs> that's what it's for. Most people find it at least partly funny. But I follow stand-up comedians. I look for stand-up, new stand-up comedians, and I at least peruse, you know, sets from com- comics that I haven't heard yet. Because I think, as someone who has to talk for an extended period of time every single week with new material every single week, stand-up comedians more so than pastors or TED talkers or your traditional orators have a unique way of critiquing the culture and themselves, calling things into question and turning our attention to new ideas in a way that's engaging and funny. And frankly, I appreciate that about them, honestly, half the time more than I do the average pastor, certainly more than myself. So I keep up with stand-up comedians, see what they're, what they're up to. And a while ago, I saw this interesting interview with um, a podcast where stand-up comedians interview other comics. And they ask them their stories, how they got in the business, what have been the ups and downs. They ask them to share stories about their worst set and how they recovered from it, the times when they felt as if they might give up. And this uh, show, this talk show, had the comedian Bill Burr as a guest. And he was talking about um, a dark period of his career when he was seriously considering quitting. If you know anything about this comedian, now he has rise to the upper ranks of, of probably what most new or um, paying their dues stand-up comedians would like to reach. He has specials on Netflix. He hosted Saturday Night Live, all that kind of thing. And for some reason, he even shows up in the new Star Wars show. I have no idea why, but there he is, Bill Burr, for, for no reason whatsoever. Anyway, he was, but before he reached all that, before he reached this point in his career where he was excelling and, oh my gosh, he was a household name, he was seriously considering giving up. And this is a long time after he had already made his start. He had specials. He was on TV. So it seemed kind of surprising that, oh, man, you were going to give up at this point because he reached this long succession of bad sets, people telling him he wasn't funny. And he talked about how he clung to this one thing throughout that entire season that kept him going from this long drought of perceived failure to what we would think of as success as a stand-up comedian. And it was a time when, years before that drought had started, another comedian, the comedian that most comedians in the world think of as the greatest living stand-up comedian at this time, which is Dave Chappelle, saw a set from Bill Burr, and he said to Bill Burr, you are very funny. And during this long drought, Bill Burr held on to this, what I would describe as a blessing that his Someone he looked up to, someone that had more status, someone that had more power, someone that had more um, charisma and ability than him, said to him, you are funny. And he actually said on this talk show that I just told myself, Dave said I was funny, Dave said I was funny, and that kept him going throughout this drought to the point where other people started to agree with what Dave Chappelle saw all those years before. And that is the nature, the actual nature of what we call a blessing. But before we get to that, before we get to the specific idea of a blessing, we have to start in Romans chapter 1. So if you're there, 
Read Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 with me. Paul, I mean silently in your own heads. We did the out loud thing a second ago. Now we're to the in your own head thing. Paul, a servant of King Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was anoint, appointed the son of God empowered by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord, through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus the King. To all in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus, the King of the universe. Now, turn one book to the right, 1 Corinthians. A bit of turning around from the outset. I know, you'll be okay. You'll survive. Did you see me fumbling around with the iPad? Surely you can flip pages and you'll be okay. Let's read the first little section of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, again, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you. From God our Father, and again, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one more time, turn over to the letter we call Colossians. Last week, we began an ongoing study of Colossians. If you missed the first teaching, go back and catch up on the podcast. That was kind of the foundation builder. Summer, which I hate, and most of you love, Kiana is wooing the fact that I hate summer, not wooing summer. Thank you for that solidarity. Uh, summer is often in the church world, in church circles, what they refer to as the off-season. This is inside baseball for you about uh, people who work at churches. A time when people lose interest in church for better things like, you know, warm weather, apparently, or picnics. So church leaders often look for ways to sort of kill time until people care again. They say things like, ah, yeah, yeah, we'll just do this, do this, do this. And then in the fall, we'll do our for real serious thing. Well, with all the insanity, of the, and we talked like this before as well, I must admit. With all the insanity of the last year, however, and all the restrictions that were imposed on the way we do church along the way, we got to a point where we didn't really feel like killing time. There was already so much that we had to limit. Now here we are. We can finally have church again. So the plan is to spend the next stretch of time together diving into this ancient, inspired, authoritative text that we now call Colossians, and then together take an honest look at where we're at in our discipleship to Jesus as individuals, in our communities, and as a church, Think about where we want to be and think about what God has in store for us for, I mean, as men and women, as communities, and as a church. With that, let's read from Colossians chapter 1, beginning again with verse 1. You guys all right? You still there? Okay. Levi, you okay? Yeah. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> Thank you. Man, not only did it take him a long time to answer, but when he did, it had a question mark on the end. Yeah. 
Anyway, geez, Colossians, note to self, don't call on Levi. Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Messiah Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. Every single letter written by Paul to churches in the New Testament begins with grace and peace. Even Paul's letters to his personal friends and mentees begin with grace and peace. Every letter, all 13, grace and peace. And I think, sure, because it sounds Christian. And maybe you're worrying that I've got a whole thing about these two words, grace and peace. And your concerns, it turns out, are founded. I do. A whole thing. Because it's weird. Look at it this way. There's only 27 books in the New Testament. Paul wrote most of them by far. And most of them are, are pretty short, all things considered. You've only got so much access to ink and papyrus and some of the circumstances out of which Paul wrote are pretty extraordinary. But it mattered enough to this guy to brand all his contributions to the Bible with grace and peace. And maybe you might think that's just the thing that you said at the beginning of letters back then. Like when uh, futuristic space aliens dig up the rubble of human civilization, they'll probably wonder what was up with dear so-and-so when they find all our letters, especially since no one talks like that. We only write it down. And they'll say to themselves, they'll say, oh, it just must be a letter thing because they're smart, these futuristic space aliens, and fast. But we know from other ancient writings that this wasn't the case for Paul. Grace comes from the Greek word charis. It's not a standard Greek greeting at all. And grace has to be in the all-time top ten, at least, of Christian buzzwords so ubiquitous that they've become like beige wallpaper, drained of all impact and meaning. Words like glory, for example. You know the words, people echoing prayers and stuff. Only not an echo at all, because that's not what an echo is. <laughs> People going on about God's name, you know, we praise your name. We do? What does that mean? We, we don't know, really. It sounded good when someone else said it, so we said it. About eight or nine years ago, the church where I worked had this annual tradition of fasting together for seven days while we prayed for the city of Portland. In fact, tons of Portland churches participated in this thing. It was actually a beautiful thing. We'd take turns every e evening meeting in churches throughout the city, and these enormous crowds would break up into small groups while various church leaders would take the stage and guide us through these ongoing prayer sessions. One night, my wife Abby and I were in a group with a friend of ours who was a pastor, and this was near the end of the week, and people were very hungry, and uh, if I'm honest, maybe a little wearied by these long nightly prayer meetings that we were going to. And the prompt that we received from the leader was to pray that God's glory would be revealed in Portland. So we sort of shrugged and said, okay, sure. And my friend bowed his head and took a deep breath, you know, like you do when you're about to begin praying. He started to pray, and he interrupted himself with his own giggling, and he looked up at Abby and me and said, man, what even is God's glory? This is a pastor, by the way. It sounds incriminating, but we actually understood what he meant then. It's something that we say to the point of familiarity, so, um, so it's, it's so familiar that it becomes drained of any significant meaning. So one reason the word grace 
is often misunderstood is because we use it to death without knowing what we're saying. What the heck is grace in the Bible? One scholar defines it this way. Grace is the free, spontaneous, unmerited favor of God. That's not wrong. That's right. But here's another one. Grace is the sum total of God's activity toward his human creatures found in the word grace. God has given himself to his people bountifully and mercifully in Christ. Nothing is deserved. Nothing can be achieved. Also true. But look at this one. Grace is that which causes joy, pleasure, gratification, favor, and acceptance. A favor done without any expectation of return. The absolutely free expression of the love of God finding its only motive in the bounty and benevolence of the giver, unearned and unmerited favor. Now, maybe some of you have heard grace defined like that as unmerited favor. And that's not wrong per se, but it's too simplistic. It's too flat. Think about the way show grace, show them grace has become the escape hatch to avoid calling people out on their crap. Just recently, um, Abby was in a predicament Someone was, I think, acting out in an unhealthy, immature kind of way. And someone else stepped in when a conversation erupted about what to do about this. And this someone else chimed in with the ever popular, you know what, we just need to show them grace right now. And what they meant by that is don't call them on their stuff. So the problem with the way that we throw the word grace around is not only does it not mean permissiveness nor leniency per se, but it doesn't even always mean unmerited favor. Paul uses the word grace more than a hundred times in his letter. Sometimes it sounds like this. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So here it's not leniency, it's not acceptance, it's not even unmerited favor, really. Grace here is a gift of empowerment, in this case, the power to do work. Elsewhere, Paul uses it this way. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had heard earlier, um, had earlier made a beginning to bring us also to completion, this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you. I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, through, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Here, grace isn't unmerited favor, nor turning a blind eye to bad behavior, but the empowerment to give. Here, grace is generosity. And we just spent weeks, like I said earlier, talking about the spiritual discipline of simplicity, a subversive way of life, 
that so contradicts and grates against the American sensibility that when asked how one could possibly learn to embody a financial dynamic of giving more than they receive, you could answer, in keeping with Paul, the only way one can pull that off is by grace. How can you do that? Give more than you receive. Live out the simplicity of Jesus. Grace. Or maybe Paul would say this of grace, as he did to his protege, Timothy. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Here, grace is the strength to fight, to suffer well, in Paul's language, grace to perform as a soldier or an athlete or a hardworking, up-before-sunrise farmer. Grace is the empowering presence of God. Grace is the creative energy of God. This is why one second century church father summarized grace as the divine energy working in the soul. Much later, one Oxford scholar would put it similarly when he said, grace is the real and redeeming presence of God in Christ within the believer. The point is this. Grace, in Paul's mind, and in the writings of the New Testament, and the writings of the scripture across the board, grace is so much more than God being nice to you when he could be mean. Grace is so much more than you not getting a punishment that you deserve, so much more than leniency, or more than God loving you when you are unlovable. Grace is the active, empowering presence of the living God in you. So I think we need a broad, big, fat category in which to house this incredible concept of grace. Here's my definition. I would put it this way. Grace is the wellspring of God's gloriously perplexing blessing. You don't deserve it and you shouldn't have it. But in Jesus, God inverts the cup of blessing over every nook and cranny of your broken being. By the Spirit of God, this scandalous favor inhabits and empowers so that in Jesus, the quivering, imperfect disciple can be who God made them to be. And Paul says that to you. Grace to you. And then Paul adds, and peace. In Greek, the word is irene. Irene doesn't carry over into English all that well because in English, peace is the opposite of what? War, yeah, war or conflict. In English, peace is the absence of conflict. But when Paul says peace, he's talking about a deep, contented stillness of the soul, the satisfaction of the soul, and arguably, most often in the midst of conflict, not in the absence of it. One scholar defines it thusly, peace is harmony, tranquility, wholeness, well-being, salvation of the total person, reconciliation of persons and societies to God as well as to one another. Peace at the deepest level. Notice 
reconciliation of persons, not just you. Remember that for later. The Hebrew word our Bibles often translate as peace is shalom, which is a traditional Jewish greeting, still is, but it's more than that. Shalom is this vision of the world as God intended it to be. Cornelius Plantinga describes shalom this way. It's the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. That is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. One of my professors put it like this. Shalom is a community where all relationships with God, others, self, and the rest of creation are well-ordered and flourishing as God designed it. And Paul says that to you. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Meaning Paul is not the source. God is. The context into which Paul loosed his many letters was a Greco world of many, many gods. If Paul wrote grace and peace to you from God, people would ask, as they would today, which one? God is, for Paul's audience, just as it is in our context, a nebulous junk drawer term, a nameless, shape-shifting, open-to-interpretation lump of cosmic Play-Doh. You hear celebrities and musicians accepting their little awards and thanking God, and you think, whatever the heck that means. Or you hear presidents and politicians invoking the name of God in favor of their political ideology and power, and you think, which God could they possibly be talking about? Not the one that I'm thinking of. Back in Savannah, Georgia, at Christmas time, the top 40 station would syndicate this famous radio personality simply known as Delilah. Has anyone heard Delilah's radio show? Anyone? You have? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great. Yeah. Delilah. <laughs> That's her jingle, if you were wondering. Uh, she's kind of the female counterpoint to John Tesh, I've learned. Uh, Abby grew up here in John Tesh. On her radio station, we had Delilah. Anyway, Abby and I used to crack up at this nutty pseudo-spirituality that she'd drum up for her call-in guests. They'd call in and be like, oh, they'd tell some kind of touching Christmas story. We didn't have any presents, and then someone brought some presents over, and she would go, oh, wow, okay, wow. And then she'd say, you know what? In, this is the real quote. Invite God into your life however you understand him. And I would say, what? She might as well have said, you know what? Do whatever, man. That means absolutely nothing. Athletes and Grammy winners going on about, I'd like to thank God, whatever the heck that means. Paul's world was, like ours, a world of many gods. But Paul's God is not any God, not open to interpretation, not however you understand him. It is the God of the Hebrew Scriptures. This God is not one God among equals, not open to interpretation. He is God the Father the creator, Yahweh. He has a name. He is the one true creator God. This grace and this peace with all their rich, robust meaning, they are from the one true God, God our Father. And then Paul refers to God as Father in one sense in keeping with Paul's Judaism in which Yahweh was the father of Israel. It's not uncommon that they would refer to God as Father, but more so God as Father, in Paul's uh, paradigm, reveals that Paul is a disciple of Jesus. We have ancient Jewish writings that refer to God as the Father of Israel in the broad cosmic sense. 
But Jesus, many argue, was the first to refer to God as Abba in this ongoing, intimate sense every time he talked about God. Not as this divine all-father of Israel alone, but intimately and personally, God was dad to Jesus. And this is complicated for us because all of us have had imperfect relationships with our fathers at least, and some of us have had downright horrific experiences with our fathers. But in Jesus' mind, God is the good father, the perfect father. God, the father, is never petty, never short-tempered, never cruel, never aloof. God, the father, does not withhold his love. He does not hit his children. He does not abuse them. He is not selfish or careless with them. If you had a good dad, then God, the father, is every wonderful attribute about him without any of the shortcomings or failures. And if you had a bad dad, then God the Father is nothing like him. And dads, since we have a lot in our church, let this wake you up. Your children's understanding of God the Father will be shaped by you, for better or worse, whether you like it or not. And if you try and let yourself off the hook with, oh, I don't claim to be perfect and I'm not trying to be any kind of a leader or anything like that, if you're a dad, you are and that's it. And yes, God is merciful and he can and will heal the hurt that we inevitably do to one another as we grow and mature in discipleship. No dad is perfect. But your children's understanding of God the Father will be shaped by you. If you are detached and unfeeling, if you are caustic and short-tempered, if you are lazy and permissive, if you do not bless them and build them up and demonstrate your unwavering determination to do them good with order and discipline and kindness and affection, then they will import those things that you teach them into their understanding of God. Or, and maybe this is an even more sobering way to look at it, if you do not take the emotional health and spiritual maturity of yourself and your family very seriously, then they likely will not either, nor will they assume that God does. In Jesus' mind, there is no question as to whether God the Father knows and cares for his daughters and sons. He does, and his only disposition toward you is to do you good. And Paul taps into that beautiful paradigm he inherited from his master Jesus when he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Now, think for a moment of the incredible magnitude of this, that this grace, this scandalous favor and blessing, this incredible empowerment to be who God has made you to be, this peace, the calm resolve in the midst of conflict and suffering, this assurance and confidence in God's goodness, this grace and this peace are from God himself to you. Now look at it this way. Here's the best way I could kind of wrap my head around it this week as I was studying this text. One person whose opinion means more to me than just about anyone else is my wife, Abby. I sincerely care about what she thinks. I think that she's very wise and discerning. And even though we disagree all the time and we argue about said disagreements from time to time, I sincerely want to know what she thinks and her support is very important to me. So Abby, because of all that, Abby has always been my first reader. When I write a book... Uh, she has always read the early draft, and then she lets me know what she thinks. She's liked some of my books more than others, 
But for the most part, she's extremely encouraging and she seems to actually enjoy reading them. So when she finishes a manuscript and she says, you did a good job, that means the world to me. But let's say that for whatever reason, that something that I had written fell into the hands of one of my favorite authors that is living and writing today. Donald Ray Pollock is one of them. Another is Otessa Moshbeg. And the third is Emma Klein. These are contemporary novelists writing and releasing their books now, like me. And some of the only authors whose work I so enjoy that if they write a new book, I just go and buy it. Sight unseen, I don't look anything up, no spoilers, release date, I go to the bookstore and buy the book. So what if somehow one of these three favorite authors of mine got a hold of something that I'd written and they got in touch with me to say, I like your writing. Even Abby would say, holy crap, what Abby thinks about my writing really means something to me, but to have someone that I consider a master of the craft validate what I do would take on this entirely new dimension of encouragement. For many in the early Christian movement, Paul was kind of the example of faith in action. He traveled all over the ancient Mediterranean. He preached the gospel. He planted churches at great personal expense, endangering his own life all the time. And remember, Paul, he hadn't even been to the church in Colossae yet, but his voice carries enough weight and pastoral authority that this letter was important and meaningful for the church. But this grace and this peace is not from Paul. It's from God himself, and that means even more. This grace and peace from God the Father is for God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, when Paul writes to the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, this is actually a subversive political statement. We did a whole series on this idea last fall. If you missed it, you can go back and catch up on the podcast. For now, the long and short of it is this. Paul often refers to Jesus as the Christos or the Kyrios, words that our Bibles translate as Christ usually or as Lord. And we read them religiously. These are, in our minds, kind of variations on Jesus' name. But these aren't names. They're titles that attribute divine power and authority and royalty to, of all people, a poor peasant rabbi from Nazareth who had just recently been executed as an enemy of the state. This is hard for us to understand because though we do live in a context of rampant political idolatry, for most of us, anyway, the stakes for complaining about politicians are not very high. A bunch of you know, rich, white, yuppie millennials in the Portland metro area kicking up a real stink about politics on their Instagram stories will, at likely, will likely at most earn them a pat on the back, even if it's from themselves, and maybe an awkward conversation with an extended family member. Big deal. But in Paul's world, to say that anyone other than Caesar was true Lord and King was a dangerous thing to do. Those of you in Van City communities, hopefully you began a new practice this week, reading through the book of Acts. And as you read Acts, you'll see that the early Jesus movement, what was then called the Way, was this dangerous, subversive, inherently political movement that made constant enemies of Jesus' disciples and the powers that be. Because to the Jews, only Yahweh was Lord and King, and to the Gentiles, only Caesar was Lord and King. 
And yet, again and again and again, obstinate and unashamed, Paul writes to disciples of Jesus throughout the empire in the name of Jesus, who is the Christos, or the Kyrios. Jesus is the Christ, the King, and the Lord. Jesus is the only one who can claim the kingship, not only assumed to Caesar, but to God himself. This is, by the way, why Paul is in jail as he is writing this letter. These unique people, the people receiving God's grace and peace, are the ones who are faithful to the way of Jesus, even at great risk to themselves, even if they claim a subversive, a very subversive way of life. And they become the church. The word church, if you didn't know, comes from the Greek word ekklesia. Maybe you've heard that before, which itself is a combination of two Greek words, ek, meaning out of or separated from, and then kalio, meaning calling or called. More literally, the church is the called out ones. Ecclesia is also translated as assembly, or even uh, as the term that we often use, the gathering. The church is the gathering together of the called out ones to God's holy people in Colossae. The Greek word that my Bible translates as holy is hagios. Uh, some Bibles render the same word saints. But a lot of translations have kind of gotten away from using the term saints because people hear saints, they think Catholic, and it turns into a whole thing. At any rate, same word, God's holy people, saints. Not one specific person in the church, not the pastor alone, not just the holy elders or the holy community leaders, but to the entire church, Paul writes, to God's holy people, or to God's saints. This, by the way, is how the New Testament refers to disciples of Jesus, not as little more than sinners saved by grace, but as saints, as God's holy people. Paul begins with the presupposition that these people to whom he is writing are saints. They are holy people, even though he will go on to correct them. Saints are not perfect. And notice the church is in Colossae. They are in a place in the world at a certain point in time, and that matters. The church is anchored in a setting. They are sanctified and set apart there in the city. It is an outpost. It's hard to be both of those things. It's hard to be saints and an outpost at the same time. Most of you know that from experience, especially if you grew up around the church in our world of American evangelicalism, many of us were taught to fear and hate the culture. I grew up in the, you know, the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s. And because of that, many people in my generation rebelled by learning to fear and hate the church as a response, which is ridiculous, just from one side all the way to the other. It's easy to mock the pendulum swinging the way it does, but it kind of makes sense. It's hard to do both things. It's hard to immerse yourself in the culture without being corrupted by it. And it's hard to live holy and set apart without fleeing from the culture, without learning to be afraid of the culture. But that is the calling of the church, to live holy and set apart in the culture, not hiding, not white-knuckling it, not creating your own Christian subculture to hide from everyone else with bad music and awful movies. How can you possibly do both things? How can you be saints in the culture, to all God's holy people in Colossae? I think the answer is community. Notice Paul's letter is to God's holy people, not to Epaphras, the church planter, not to one person, but to the people 
Discipleship to Jesus always and only happens in community. And by that, the New Testament doesn't mean being at church on Sunday or bringing food to a small group during the week. It means actually sharing the messiness of your life with other disciples of Jesus as they share theirs with you, with accountability and support and relationship. God himself is inherently relational and inherently others-oriented. People often tell us that they don't want their lives laid bare in the imperfect and often unsafe messiness of community because it will be hard or it will hurt or someone will hurt them or someone has hurt them or they're anxious or they're scared or because they're worried that people are not trustworthy. All of these things God confronts moment by moment with all people on earth throughout human history. And he does not demand that you do it perfectly like he does. He only demands the obedience to show up. You don't even have to be wildly enthusiastic about it. Just because you're in community doesn't necessarily mean that you're known by others. But if you're not in community, then you are definitely not. If you do not have other disciples of Jesus who know and love you, the real you, with all your garbage and everything, speaking into your life and speaking into your discipleship to Jesus on a consistent basis, if your life is not open to them for support and for accountability, then you are not engaged in New Testament Christianity. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father. Before we end, the last question I want to pose circles back to that conversation about stand-up comedians which is what if the way that we greet one another actually matters? Paul could have cut to the chase across at least some of these letters, if not all of them. He could have said, it's me, Paul, and then get right into it. But instead, even his greeting is loaded with dense, beautiful theological significance. This isn't the only way that Paul demonstrates his belief in the power of greetings. It was Paul who gave us that funny command about greeting one another with a holy kiss. It's in Romans, it's in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, it's in Thessalonians. Later on, Peter says the same thing. Now, obviously, the whole cultural context thing comes into play here. I should have let that go a little longer, made everyone worry that we were going to have to kiss each other. But listen for a minute. The cultural context does come into play here, but the fact that the kiss command belongs to a different time and place might honestly be a tad exaggerated. What I mean is that we read the whole holy kiss thing and we say, well, that was an ordinary and appropriate greeting in Paul's culture, not so much ours, therefore we no longer go around kissing everyone at church. That part's fair. But I would argue that it wasn't exactly an ordinary greeting in Paul's context either. If what you mean by ordinary is not bizarre and inappropriate, as is the case in our culture, well then sure, it was more ordinary in that sense. But if it was so commonplace that everyone went around kissing each other hello all the time, why would Paul bother insisting on it again and again and again? What we can learn from the whole holy kiss thing is that within the realm of cultural context and what is appropriate, there are cordial, polite greetings, and then there are warm, affectionate, 
personal greetings that demonstrate love and sincerity. And Paul says, do the latter. Greet each other warmly with kindness and affection and sincerity. Before the plague, we did what many churches have done for a very long time. And we made space in every gathering to greet one another. It's a very common historical thing that churches do. We called it the four minutes because the number four in the scriptures is a symbol of familial love. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It was called the four minutes because it lasted for four minutes. And everyone handled it very differently. For the most part, it was a warm, talkative few minutes, and it was hard to get everyone to quiet down and take a seat when the whole thing was over. But for some people, it was time to, you know, run to the coffee or to the restroom at the same time every time. It's very regular people. Um, or, you know, some people started to ask us personally, can't you please just, like, put an icebreaker on a slide? <laughs> or give us some instructions on how to greet one another, anything for the love of God, anything more than the awful chaotic prompt of say hi to people around you. So terrified were some people. And if you remember, uh, if you were here long enough, Cam, he was the real jerk. He was always the one who was up here and said, say hi to someone that you don't already know. And even I hated that with all the rules. Jesus is trying to give us so many rules on how to say hello to Everyone, and then for a while, I was worried that I kept looking back at the stage. I thought he was going to stand up there and monitor us while we were doing it. Sounds like something he would do. But honestly, that four minutes of saying hello is something that, God, I'm so eager to reclaim as soon as the COVID regulations allow it. We participated in that tradition familiar to so many churches, or churches around the world for a reason, not just because, oh, this is some churches do, so stick it in there. We actually thought through that theologically. Greetings actually matter. One pastor I know used to say, greetings matter because people matter. And this is a challenge for me for two reasons. First, I'm told anyway that my personality is dry and sarcastic and deadpan. I'm not like Katie or Kiana or Cam and that I don't often exude enthusiasm in the traditional way. My wife, Abby, is the same way. She's very, very mellow. She's the worst gift receiver ever. It's, it's not gratifying at all. She opens something that you know she's extremely excited about, and she goes, cool, thanks, every time. On our, <laughs> this is not in my notes, but here, here's a story for you. She's not here. Um, our second uh, anniversary, we've been married for 13 years now, but on our second anniversary, um, I got us a trip to go to Paris. Woohoo! It's gonna be, and we did. It was fun. Uh, and then this is something that she really cared about, man. Man, she has got fireworks. I'm gonna be celebrated to the rooftop. This celebration might, might nev may never end. Um, and I arranged this big way to surprise her. I won't bore you with the details, but that's actually what she said. She opened the thing and she went, "Oh, cool, thanks," like that. Like, what? I was. I actually said, "Are you kidding? What the heck?" Anyway, totally sincere. Uh, that's her genuine demeanor. She could hop up and down and sparkle for you, but it would be an act. And that's my second problem with taking the implications of this greeting to heart. I have an extreme allergic reaction to anything that I perceive to be phony. There are times when it can be a good thing, but more often, I'm afraid it can be a frustrating inroad to cynicism and pessimism. It's why Abby and I fight about pop music and Taylor Swift, but it's, 
also something for which God has rebuked me, honestly. A few years ago, Cam and, and Patrick and I were invited to attend this church conference with other pastors and church planters and employees. We were super excited, and we got there, and there were a few, like, celebrity Christians there. <laughs> This is such a stupid thing to say. And there were some popular authors and there were a whole bunch of megachurch pastors. And there was this outrageous amount of like blatant, unashamed elbow rubbing and networking and kissing up. These uh, big somebodies would kind of pass us in a hallway and they, you could tell that they were looking at us like, oh, should I know this person? How many followers do they have? And then they'd come over. I, still, I sound so cynical now just telling you the story. Can't even get to the end. And they'd come up to us and they'd be like, hey, what's, what's the name of your church and how big is it? right away, and I would be like, it's small, you don't know what it is from the outset. And when they'd find out that we were nobodies, they would immediately move on to the next opportunity, sometimes in mid-sentence of us talking and just go to the next person, start, start networking and schmoozing with them. So by the end of this conference, I honestly felt like I was crawling in my skin. Cam and Patrick and I were sitting in our lonely seats away from everyone. They, I think that they printed the name of our church wrong on the lanyards. You remember that, Cam? What did it say? Do you remember? Vanity City, right? Yeah, Vanity City. Who would call their church Vanity City? You didn't stop to double check when you thought that's what it was. So we had our lanyards wrong. Everyone was ignoring us. We were sitting like rejects on this pew by ourselves. Uh, and I was honestly so disgusted with everything. I was just sitting there judging everyone sneering at this whole thing. I was appalled by the level of what I thought was pretense and insincerity. And I was like, man, just get us out of here. We, got, we did get free coffee and, uh, and maybe free food out of it. If there was anything free, I'm sure we took most of it. Anyway, it was, we were ending the, our day with a time of prayer and listening. And God honestly rebuked me as I sat there. I was like, okay, yeah, fine, listen, blah, blah, blah. What do you have to say? And I realized that, man, I had completely overlooked and shut out anything that God could do and was doing, even in what I thought was an artificial environment, because I was so preoccupied with my own imagined superiority. I had gone inward, so convicted that the whole thing was a sham. I stopped engaging people other than, you know, basic politeness to respond to hellos and carry on a conversation. I don't think that I was outright rude, maybe I was, but I absolutely was not greeting anyone with you know, a holy kiss or anything like it. The way that we greet one another, regardless of how we are being greeted, has the potential to say to another person that they matter, that we see them, that they're more than just one in a sea of faces, more than a stranger in God's family. You don't have to drum up some insincere song and dance and stretch an artificial smile across your face. You just have to remember what God thinks about other people. And in the moments that you have to greet them, consciously imbibe that disposition through the sincerity of your own personality, however your personality is. But if your personality is the opposite of mine, then maybe you need to hear this part. People can sense insincerity. You may think that by smiling from ear to ear, even when you don't mean it, and exaggerating your hello and putting on a big show of every, hey, guys, you know, that you're doing them some big favor. But without sincerity, it can be as empty and lifeless as the cold shoulder. So if you don't fake it and you don't force it, what do you do? 
You are learning to remember that every person is made in God's image and loved by God the Father. You recognize the image of God in everyone and you let your words and actions imbibe that recognition through the filter of your personality. Most of us, if someone we love and deeply respect brings another person to us and says, listen, I really want you to meet this person, then we give that person a level of focused attention, even if the meeting is brief, because they've been brought to us by someone we know and trust. But what if every person we met, and especially the family of God in the church, we eyed through the lens of God's loving concern for them, as if God brought them to us and said, I want you to meet this person. Without pretense or theatrics, we discipline ourselves to give them all the warmth and affection that comes from sincere attention, seeing them and greeting them with the grace and peace of God the Father, which at that point is less of a greeting and more of a blessing. In the scriptures, a blessing is often what one person speaks over another person in order to build them up and release them into their God-given identity and calling. Could be small instances, something contained in the, in the span of a greeting, or it could be something that happens again and again in the intimacy of relationship over time. So listen to me when I say that what you do and do not say to another person has in it the power of life and death. Again, you parents, your kids will live into what you say about them, for better or for worse. If you gripe about them and you call it joking around, saying, oh, they're crazy or they're wild, that they talk too much, they're no good at this or that. Just this last uh, weekend, I went, Abby and I went to get takeout. I was talking to a gentleman that owned the restaurant. He looked down at my kids. He said, how old is she? About Island. I said, four. He's like, oh, my grandson is four. He talks too much. Does she talk too much? I was like, no, it's awesome. I want to hear her talk all the time. I was more worried about what she would think than he would think. The conversation was strange after that. If you react to your child's imperfect enthusiasm for you or for life or for whatever it is that interests them by making them feel stupid or rejected, they will be shaped by that. My daughter, the one that I said, no, 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 she doesn't talk too much. She talks great. She straight up tells us all the time that she's smart and beautiful. Right now, before the world attempts to beat that out of her, she actually believes that about herself because we tell her that all the time. The same is true of friends and your family, and the same is true of the people in your community. They may not act like it. They don't have the childlike resources to just shamelessly say, I'm beautiful and smart because, you know, Kevin in my community told me so. But they will internalize that and remember that, even the people in your community. This is especially true of blessing between members of the same gender when men bless men and women bless women. Of course, men can bless women and women can bless men, but especially true within the same genders because men often feel threatened by other men and women often feel threatened by other women, especially when they're older or have more perceived status or power or position, even if it's not true. But if that older man or woman gives some of their status or power or position away by blessing someone with less, they will build that person up. You can do that. Yes, 
You, every one of you, if you follow Jesus, then in the language of the New Testament, you are a saint. You are collectively a royal priesthood. You have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead alive in you, and you have the power of life and death in your words. And you are not only empowered by God to bless others with your words, but you are responsible to God for it. Honestly, I had been in seminary for years. I had been learning to teach the Bible already for a few years. I had everything lined up to continue down this road I'm on if I wanted to. But it wasn't until my friend and my mentor specifically blessed me in a specific moment in time that I felt like, okay, I'll give it a shot then. It was, I remember it vividly. It was a Sunday night. I had just given a sermon. It was one of my first ones. I'm sure it was horrible. But even so, he put his hand on my shoulder and he prayed over me and he said, not just as a mentor, but as a friend, Josh, I see this calling on your life and I believe in you that you can do it. And that was some huge dramatic moment, obviously. But how many of you have stories about a person in your life that time and time again looked, in you, looked you in the eyes when they said hello, or received you again and again with genuine warmth and affection, even with very little at stake, and it meant something to you. How many of you know people in your life or in your community, the kind of people that just regularly tell other people, you're great at this, or man, I thought that you did wonderfully at this. That's not nothing, that is something. Even if it doesn't seem like they react, believe me, that means something. Ronald Rollheiser argues this. He says, we bless others when we see them, delight in their energy rather than feel threatened by it, and give away some of our own life to help resource their lives. Sadly, the reverse is also true. We curse others when we demand that they see and admire us, when we demand that they speak well of us, and when we use their lives to build up our own. A gesture of blessing feeds others. A cursing gesture feeds off of them. He goes on to conclude, we cannot force others to bless us, but we can bless others. And in that is our freedom. Maybe I was right about all that phoniness at that megachurch conference. But what if, rather than giving myself over to cynicism, I decided to bless instead? My experience of that conference and other people's experience of it around me would have been entirely different, and I missed it. What if, like Paul, well aware of the imperfections of the church that he addressed, we began with a disposition of grace and peace to you from God the Father. You are saints. What if we learn to practice this as the baseline, the starting point for all interactions with our friends and families, our children, our spouses, our church, with all their brokenness and all their imperfections, even so, the baseline, the starting point was grace and peace. With all of its rich profundity, grace and peace to you from God the Father. And if this cuts you, then join the club. I'm often, like I said, sarcastic. I can have a dark, cynical sense of humor. It's often the language that I speak with my friends. And it can suck sincerity out of the room to where everything is so funny and so cynical all the time that it's hard to tell if anyone ever means anything that they say. And no, it's not always wrong to be sarcastic or to joke around, but do we want to be known for that? 
Or would we, would we rather be known for blessing others with what we say? Not contrived or superficial, but to love them, taking time to see them and to speak truth over them from God's spirit in us. That is what you're going to do this week in your Van City communities, is to take time and bless one another. You'll see. The practice is at vancity.church slash Colossians. And we are going to begin to put this into practice. For some of you, it will be familiar and easy. And for others of you, it will be an uphill but beautiful journey, blessing one another with grace and peace from God the Father. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to empower us to do so. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.